This podcast episode is brought to you by Sonotype, your supply chain security management platform. Just visit sonotype.com to learn more about finding and fixing Log4j and other open source vulnerabilities. Hello, hackers. This is the Hacker Noon Podcast, and my name is Amy Tom, your podcast host and very best friend. I've got a little PSA for you about the times that we're living in and technology. I just started reading this very average romance crime novel. It's called The Bitcoin Widower, and it's about a woman who meets a man on Tinder who owns a Bitcoin exchange and he goes missing and then she has to deal with all of his like Bitcoin assets. So that's the society that we're living in now. There are now romance novels about Bitcoin. So just a PSA for everybody that that's where we're at in 2022 now. (laughs) But anyways, Aside from that, I am very excited to chat today with Ilka Turinen, who is the field CTO of Sonatype. Afternoon podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Ilka. Happy to be here. And did, did, didn't that Bitcoin thing actually happen in like 2017? Probably. I wouldn't be surprised. There are probably um, definitely real Bitcoin widowers out there. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure someone actually faked their death to get away with the Bitcoin exchange. So yeah, that's, that's the world we live in. Great. Well, tell me, Ilka, I would love to know more about you and specifically about your title as field CTO, because really this is kind of the first time that I've come across the specific designation of field CTO. So tell me what that is. Well, you know, I welcome to the wonderful world of tech titles. You know, we'll, we'll invent yes. one every year, you know, for ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm Ilka, I'm the uh, field CTO at Sonatype, which is a company that deals with software supply chain security and managing open source and all things related to that sort of thing. And field CTO, it's a bit of a mouthful, but the clues in the title, field and CTO, you know, the, the kind of business that us as tech companies often are, especially when we're talking about developer tooling, means that there's a component of needing an engineer to help you figure out what the tool is, how, how it kind of fits within your specific software delivery infrastructure, how it kind of sits there. And so what I'm responsible really is running the teams that actually engage with people thinking about our tools and, uh, you know, uh, implementing them and just help them make sure that they put it over there, get it built correctly, you know, get it designed correctly. They're buying the right thing so that they don't like put a hundred grand down and then buy completely the wrong tools and never use it again and regret it horribly. And um, the other aspect of, of the job really is the CTO side, which means that I work with our CTO office to represent what, whatever we hear from customers. Like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if your product had this feature or wouldn't it be cool if you guys did this or I don't really like how that works. We collect all that information and make sure that it gets taken in by engineering and product management so they have accurate data about what's actually being asked, what's kind of going on in the field. So I look after solutions architects, I look after developer relations, I look after all these sort of cool things that kind of happen around the company that has folks talking to other people that don't work for the company. So yeah, that's a, okay. that's a very long answer. The short answer is when the CTO who's in America is asleep, I usually pick up the phone calls. So, you know, uh, that's okay. basically Right. How many people are in the CTO suite? Yeah, there's just two. There's Brian Fox, who's our co-founder and CTO. He's the actual CTO and an amazing tech god. 
And then there's me who goes, all right, that's uh, that's how you say to the world, like, here's how, how it act, what it actually means to the people that have to implement this thing. So that's basically the two of us. That makes so much sense, because I think talking to customers and being on the ground and understanding the technical aspects of your customer's environment is such an important part of being a CTO, but it often gets so overlooked because there's so much other stuff to do. So that's very cool and exciting that you guys have segmented it that way. Well, it's also a reality in the field often as a tech company we're thinking about the future how things should be and how, how should you structure your software development in the future which you know isn't exactly an exciting thought for most people's uh, everyday life so there's a long way of getting folks to understand hey okay you're here today here's where you could be but here's step one and two that you need to take today or tomorrow in order to get there so it really helps having that sort of tight visibility of hey here's what people are actually struggling with in their real everyday working lives and here's how we can help them when we're thinking about what product should we build next or what feature should we implement next it's it's always an eternity problem with most tech companies is how do you like accurately do that because everybody's got a gut feeling and everybody's got a vision but that might be completely misguided compared to what the customers are actually telling you or even people that aren't your customers yet who are really the harder crowd to attract having that sort of tight one foot in in the outside world at all times and being able to talk about it meaningfully when we're making these product and investment decisions really just helps the company do the right moves and build the right things so that six months down the line the customers don't scratch their heads and go, what's this then? And, and why'd you build it? Okay, I need to get into more of the how of having yeah. your other foot in your customer's door and like in your customer feedback. So how do you do that? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, no days like the other. It's uh, very much a day to day. So one of the kind of key things that all the teams that I work with do and all my colleagues in, in, in software solution architecture and in developer relations, they're really out there every day, either as a part of uh, ongoing engagements where customers are evaluating our tools or trying out new technology or going out to conferences, going out to communities and working with them, just listening what's going on. And so as a part of it, I might do any of those things and all the rest. And sometimes it's about just listening. You might tell me that, hey, something's going on in my company. I really just want to solve this problem. I just want to turn on a feature and forget about it. But actually, you might not be thinking about it at the proper scale. So we're helping you figure that one out. And as as we have these conversations, like no company is the same. It feels like everybody thinks about the same things and thinks that about things in the same way. But actually, when you get into the specifics of every single company, like absolutely no company is exactly the same. There's always like somebody's invented some new way of doing things or somebody's DIY'd some part of their production set. So having that sort of sense of, hey, here's how other companies do this thing. Here's how you can gain some uh, extra advantage by doing that thing, maybe in a custom way for your thing kind of helps you. And having that sort of sense of, what's going on with every customer, hearing all those stories come back and sometimes pretty uh, hot feedback as well coming back, kind of taking that back in, kind of making sure that we've got a process that associates that with the customer, their value, their adoption helps us then when we're looking at things in the cold hard light of day, we've only got so much time in the world and only so many uh, teams, what can we do and what, what will make the most impact to most customers? So we try and take kind of a very data-oriented way of making that decision, obviously mixed in with our good senses uh, as well. So really, it's it's 
all and all and everything one yeah. day i might yeah. just be doing a whiteboarding session the next day i might be talking to executives about how to measure and manage that yeah and how has your job changed since the pandemic has started because i imagine like as a field cto going out in the field you would have had a lot of in-person things and now maybe more like some zoom time so what's going on there <laughs> a lot more zoom time i'm sure i mean you know, that's the beauty of the software industry in general right you know by definition we're all very asynchronous like you know the funny thing is when you know the pandemic struck when everybody kind of went remote working i don't think i really saw any difference in software teams other than hey i can just turn on my slack at home instead of uh, anywhere else mm-hmm. so we were already very used to talking to customers and companies just remotely and actually in that sort of sense if anything it just made it easier to talk to them directly because you don't have the ceremony of having to book a room and figuring out who gets the uh, coffees in and 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 things like that on the other hand yeah it it certainly did a change because you sometimes hear the most honest feedback after the meeting in the hall on the way out and those sorts of moments you now have to think about, you know, how do you make sure that, you know, we're, we're running the meeting in a way that allows people to express that. And yeah, it's certainly been a change for sure. But I think overall, actually, like the actual specifics of it haven't really changed that much. It's just, mm-hmm. uh, you can stack more of them in half an hour increments now. Right. And what about how your customers and how the business has changed in general since the pandemic with regards to like the increase of supply chain attacks? Well, that's been a big phenomena for us. So we uh, have seen quite a lot of increase in customers thinking about supply chain attacks, just generally companies that we not really hear from before, really getting quite serious about it. You know, it's kind of follows over the last few years. feels even weird to say, but we've got events like Code Cove and Supply uh, uh, Solar Winds. Uh, obviously, Log4j mm-hmm. happened over Chris. It's three month anniversary tomorrow, actually. So it feels like it was so long ago, but it was literally just yeah, three, less than three months ago today. Mm-hmm. So customers are starting to pay attention to it. And it's been also uh, added on to by the fact that governments have started issuing decrees. You know, yes. uh, the Biden administration put right. a executive order about dealing with the supply chain. So it, it certainly increased activity quite a lot. And the conversation is no longer about a change agent, you know, someone who's really enlightened with DevSecOps, really wanting to change how companies are working, is literally companies taking kind of a board view of, hey, we're going to have mitigation to this because we're going to get asked about it, which is which is definitely a change. So are there now, under the Biden administration, are there now compliance regulations with regards to monitoring your supply chain? Yeah, so there's, there's literally in November, a executive order that came out, and it's called love Americans. They always got great titles for this. It's the uh, executive order on the nation's uh, cybersecurity. And in there, there's an entire segment about uh, software supply chain security. And one of the things that they say is that they will come out with minimal software bill of material standards, and they will require every company that sells software to the US government to provide uh, a list of ingredients, so to speak, a list of every piece of open source that's been built into the software that's provided and assurances that if one of those uh, pieces of open source or the pieces of the supply chain goes wrong, that the company has a process to find and mitigate it. And that that's a big change because historically, when you talk to companies and you say, hey, did you know that 90% of your software is actually external? Like you didn't write it yourself. It came from some person somewhere and you just adopted it because it was it was useful most companies would have gone on a complete blank so uh, for them to then say 
hey, we're going to require this from all of our suppliers. It's a very big change and a very significant shift in standards. Now, what's happening now is there's actually a supply chain security standard that's being worked on by uh, NIST, which is like the national standards organization, like really exciting stuff, I'm sure. But basically that will have a big effect on, you know, just what the baseline of good security should look like. And I think, you know, supply chain is going to increasingly get, get pulled into that. Yeah. Would you say that the best way to mitigate supply chain risk would be vendor consolidation? Yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, it depends on how deep you want to go, but the actual fundamentals of this come from the 60s. Because in the 60s, car manufacturers, when they invented something called lean manufacturing, which is really the um, uh, core of how we build software today, you know, lean and agile, essentially uh, essentially have that. The person that invented that manufacturing style was a guy called W. Edwards Deming. He spent a lot of time in Japan in kind of the 50s and 60s rebuilding the industry. And one of the things that he realized as a part of like figuring out how to get Toyota to be the biggest car maker in the world was that they were using a lot of third-party suppliers. Like they had a local foundry that would manage their nuts and bolts for them, like would just literally cast them on the spot. So no two cars really had the exact same parts. And he realized that uh, actually understanding what actually went into your car, like, you know, if, if there's a problem in any part of a car down to a bolt, they'll issue a recall, right? You know, you'll have yeah. to drive your car in, they'll do something, you know, change the airbags or whatever. If I asked anyone writing software today, could you do that? Well, after Log4j, I think more companies will say yes, yeah. but literally even six months ago, everybody was like, what do you even mean? Like, what, what's that? And he, he realized that actually reducing the amount of, externally built software parts in those cars is really, really useful, but also just like basic stuff like, Hey, have you looked at three different bolts and decided which ones are the best? You'd be surprised at how often the answer is now. I just took the first one that looked right. And all of those lessons that he made, you know, reduce the amount of suppliers, reduce the uh, complexity of your supply chain, you know, uh, understand what parts are in your car, etc. All of those principles are actually really applicable to software. And when you follow all of them, um, turns out, you know, that's, that's what it takes to uh, start managing this whole beast. Right. And, but like when you refer that to software, right. And you're, you think about like as an organization in security in operations, all of the different applications that I need to have connected to my network and all of the different open source code and everything, even if vendors were to provide that information to me as a business owner, as a security person, how am I supposed to say, oh, okay, great. This person is using this open source code. Cool. On to the next. How many is too many? How do I manage my environment? It's a really good question. It starts (laughs) with, you have to do a little bit of self-seeking and figure out what is your tolerance, right? You know, I use the word, but it's policy that helps you, helps you define that. So in in most cases, it's not just the amount of open source that's, that's meaningful. You know, some projects like today, when you look at a piece of, a piece of, um, you know, Java, for example, easy to see 150, 300 pieces of uh, third-party components uh, in there. JavaScript, you can probably draw a zero at the end. You know, if, if you've ever heard of dependency health, that's that's what they do in that sort of uh, uh, that sort of sphere. Um, the amount of open source is less meaningful. What's really important though is understanding exactly what you do have. Like in every shipment, what's mm-hmm. the complete list of ingredients? Like not and not just open source packages, but like the Docker container that you run it in, or on the network packages that are installed in your operating system. It's, it's a tough ask. Most companies can't answer this today, but you. But in order 
first to manage anything. You have to understand what you have. What do you have in release 1.0? What are the pieces of open source? Second question then is, do you understand if there's any existing security vulnerabilities? Like most hacks, although we talk a lot about zero days and, and you know, kind of cool new attacks coming out, the most exploits, the actual breaches of companies that happen, they're not on these new, new fad things. They're on vulnerabilities that were discovered five years ago that were kind of briefly in, in the mind, hearts and minds of security teams and developers, and then promptly forgotten. Like, yeah. uh, and now when you think about Log4j today, most companies that I talk to, they're kind of getting to that sort of hangover phase of, well, we had a big fire drill, we kind of figured out to mitigate it, but there's this sort of long tail of stuff that probably has it you know, hidden in you know, as a part of another component or something like that. And uh, they're unable to find it, and that leaves a lot of risk on the table. So, kind of similarly with open source, when you're uh, when you're accepting delivery, it might just start with, "Hey, company A, you're sending us software. We're accepting it. What's in it?" Like just asking that very basic question sometimes uh, gets a lot of uh, head spinning. Going like, "Well, actually, I don't know. What do you mean? What's in it?" Like, not accepting complete black box deliveries can be useful. Mm -hmm. The second part of it, though, is just very basic. Does it have any known security vulnerabilities? If so, are any of them really critical? In software engineering, we've got this saying, what's the fastest and cheapest way of dealing with technical debt or bugs? Well, the earlier you find it, the faster and easier it is to fix. Similarly, with security vulnerabilities, the earlier you find it, the faster and easier it is to fix. And the fastest and cheapest way of fixing a security vulnerability is not having one at all. So if Somebody tries to deliver you a software, they've got a software bill of materials, you, you're looking through the list and saying, hey, wait a minute, that has a known vulnerability, it's like a 10 out of 10. Mm -hmm. Don't don't accept it, just like leave it at the door, because that's like a ton of work off of your desk, like immediately. Yeah. Oh, it, the idea of the vendor due diligence is like so overwhelming to me because there's so much yeah. going on. <laughs> It, it, it's it's not something that you know has a has really a bearing on everyday developers per se because it yeah. really feels like it's like a big hairy beast for someone else. But mm -hmm. actually, we we as devs do all of that every single day. Like mm -hmm. everybody who installs a package, like you're just writing a code and you're like, hey, I should probably use Express to do this quick and dirty web server. Well, congratulations, you've just literally downloaded a hundred packages. Hey, I should I don't know this one then should be React. Well, there you go. That's uh, 200 more packages in your node modules. Hey, I should yeah. run this in a Docker container. Well, that's three yeah. or layers. And and just asking the question of, hey, where did this all come from? Sometimes leads you down a hellish rabbit hole. And most people go, you know what? As long as it works and I don't get breached, that's probably okay. And that's the kind of trap that a lot of people fall into. It's like learning to wash your hands before surgery. Feels like a completely disconnected thing. I'm just washing my hands, like nothing to do with cutting people open, healing their in innards. But turns out you've got bacteria in your hands. If you do that five, one second thing, it can save a lot of pain down the line. And similarly with software, stopping and thinking for a second and going like, wait a minute, why did I pull this in in the end? Like, do I really need this? Can kind of help you a lot uh, down the line. Yeah. Supply chain attacks scare me so much be too because like you can feel so secure, like you've done all of the things that you need to do, all of your due diligence, but then like it's a third party that's going to like screw you over at the end and you have no control. The lack of control is like... <laughs> that's the typical symptom of having to come up with a new discipline. I think yeah. 
we are starting to realize, right, is that it isn't just like, hey, I should be mining about everything. I think it's really a new kind of muscle that every software company has to has to develop. Because you're absolutely right. It, you can do everything right yourself, but if you haven't minded the 90% that you didn't write yourself, but that forms your software, that can be a problem, a really, really big problem. Yeah. And it's not yeah. just the extent, the supply chain, it could mean your operating systems and things like that. Very quickly, you go down a rabbit hole of, well, it's too big to even think about. I can't do anything about it, so I shouldn't do about it. And that's a very quick trap that we all fall into. Like the first thing to managing anything is to understand it in, it, in all of its hairy goodness. And mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you need to take very big steps to start like making a very big dent in it. Just by, you know, running one of, one of the many security scanners out there can help you a lot with that sort of thing. It's not just you that's feeling that dread. We're also seeing actual bad actors, ransomware gangs and hackers and script kiddies and everybody in between kind of going like, well, wait a minute, instead of hacking you specifically, if I hack the upstream and I just put a fake package out there, that might get spread to thousands, if not millions of people. And even if it's up for just a day or two, that's got enough of a downstream effect. That's mm -hmm. unfortunately the reality of the way we write software today. And it certainly is something that mm -hmm. that's uh, causing a lot of uh, you know, heartache yeah. you know, in a lot and of places. And then you know like how you'll occasionally run into these CTOs where they're like, my security is mm, perfect. Can't No one can get in. No, you're lying. If you have even one like other third party in your network, <laughs> you have security vulnerabilities. <laughs> It's like just a game of broken telephone. If you're borrowing something for someone else, you don't understand it fully. That leaves things open. There's no such thing as 100% secure security. Like there's just yeah. absolutely, yeah. if somebody tells you that, just walk away and, you know, go somewhere else. Yeah. That's a okay. complete lie. Um, <laughs> Good luck. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what? Uh, I'll take my business elsewhere. But the secret to that is saying, you know what? It's like running a marathon. You can't run it off cold, you know, no matter how hard you try. But if you keep at it every single day uh, and you keep going uh, going at it and keep training and keep uh, running a little bit more, turns out you get pretty good at just running in general, right? It doesn't mean that you need to start very big to make quite a very big impact on it. And I think a lot of companies are resistant to it at the moment because they're like, well, hey, you know, it's the dev's job. I, I don't really want to think about it. It's like, well, wait a minute, if your devs use open source, and that license has the license that they adopted has a very strong code sharing clause. Then you need to share your like entire code base with the world. Are you, are you willing to do that? And that often gets folks scratching heads. So it's, it's not even just about security always. It can just be like, well, wait a minute. You've got 10 teams and every team uses a different front framework. Why is that? Like just asking sort of very fundamental questions and people go, well, my devs choose their own tools. Like, great. That's absolutely what should happen. But like, do you, do you really need like four different, you know, front frameworks for the same yeah. thing? Like they're all doing the same buttons. Shouldn't they like be sharing components? It's like very basic stuff. And people go, oh, you mean like I, I can just borrow code from that team? Like, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of the point. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's just so many aspects of everything to think about in security. So I want to ask you more about your thoughts on Log4J and yeah. just what you think the industry has learned from that. I think the industry has certainly learned that uh, fire drills just before the holiday season is always fantastic. 
So Log4j uh, was described actually by the director of CISA, the Cyber Information Security Center in the US, which is their top agency for dealing with this sort of incidents as the worst security vulnerability in her entire career, which is saying something because that's, oh, that's like- Oh, okay, I did not know that. Wow. <laughs> there you go. It's, it's a very, very hairy beast. And the reason why that is, is two things. First of all, Log4j is a really popular open source component. Mm -hmm. My employer, Sonotype, we actually run one of the, uh, or we're custodians of one of the largest registries of open source, something called Maven Central. Basically, every time somebody builds Java code or Android code or anything that's related to Java like Scala, typically the third party stuff comes from us. We run the servers uh, and the CDN that uh, provides them with the dependencies. And when Log4j happened, we actually ran the numbers. Log4j is in the top 0.03% most popular open source component. There's over 8 million open source components oh, in wow. Central. Okay. So yeah. kind of go, it's like a lot. And since Log4j, the uh, vulnerability was announced, since then, up to last hour, I've actually got the dashboard here, there's been 30 million uh, downloads, over 30 million downloads of Log4j since. Yeah. So it tells you a little bit of the volume of it. This is to say, Log4j is very popular. It's spread everywhere. And as an attacker, it's a very sim simple assumption to make. If I find a piece of Java software, it probably has Log4j in it because Log4j deals with logging, right? You know, it's just writes your software's logs down for you. So it's a very, very ubiquitous thing. Everybody needs to do it. So everybody probably has it. And the security vulnerability that was discovered is very easy to exploit. I can train anyone in the space of five minutes to run attack code uh, on Log4j. So when you combine something that's very widespread with something that's very, very easy to run, like any anyone can do it, that's where the danger zone sort of happens. So when mm -hmm. Log4j came out, there were like people put, punching it in, in their Teslas, the, the attack string, and getting like responses back, knowing that, hey, I could have done this. And that's why actually most governments told their uh, teams that they have until about Christmas to actually find and mitigate it. It was so big and so widespread. And even today, when I look at the download counts, we, we publish a dashboard to the world about how the world is fixing Log4j, because we can see the download mm. volumes of different versions. To this mm -hmm. day, 40% of all downloads for Log4j are still to the old vulnerable versions, <laughs> not to the new fixed ones. That's crazy. So Such a big widespread attack that got so much media attention. Why do you think that's the case? Yeah, it's, it's because it really is so easy to exploit. It's pretty much anything that runs Java will probably have it. And because it's so easy to exploit, it's very easy for bad actors then to go out, just literally spray every IP address on the internet and see which ones stick because you don't really have to have finesse about it. You just need to like knock on the door and see which ones are vulnerable. And then you can come back later uh, to do it. The scariest so, kind of attack. <laughs> indeed. It's like literally just walking down the street, trying every door and every window and seeing which ones are open and then going, all right, I'll come back to this later. Exactly the yeah. same strategy, actually. Yeah. That's the danger is because it's so widespread and so widely adopted. You can make an assumption that maybe one or, one or two of those companies will probably forget one of the older pieces of software that they have. And that's what made it so scary and widespread. It's because it's not just the code that the software the companies wrote themselves. It's any piece of Java software that they've ever bought in, forgotten to patch running in some server somewhere that might have network access, that's still liable to that attack. 
And uh, that's why it was such a big deal and why it really broke into the mainstream news, which is something that we've not seen before for a vulnerability like this. It, it's just the fact that it's like somebody telling you that the concrete in your house turns out every piece of concrete poured in the last 30 years was bad. And now yeah, everybody has yeah. to fix it. It's just that magnitude of an issue for Java programmers. And that's really the, the reason why it blew up. And I hate to say it, but we're in the long tail now where most companies probably ran a ton of fire drills because mm -hmm. often when mm -hmm. stuff like this happens, it's not the actual original vulnerability. That's the problem. It's because people start paying attention to the technology like that. So as soon as that happened, every single security researcher in the world started looking at every other logging framework. So yeah. within the space of like three weeks, it, we saw five other security vulnerabilities come out in Log4j itself, in other logging frameworks uh, and other things. So all of a sudden, everybody's minds are focused on that single method of attack. And it's like somebody finding a very fundamental flaw in the logic of how, right. how that code was written. It, it spreads out. And that's really the next danger is like, it wasn't actually just that thing. It's now we're at like, what, six releases uh, from that original vulnerable version. There's been like backports, there's been buying fixes, fixes for fixes because they introduced new vulnerabilities. And the project's been very good at providing them. They're like, they churn them out like beasts. Absolutely um, astonishing how good they're at dealing with it. But as a receiver, there comes a point where you'll just like, your inbox is filled with, hey, update this, update that. Eventually you go, eh, you know what? Can't be bothered anymore. I think like mm -hmm. the biggest thing is over now. And that's really the dangerous lie that we usually tell ourselves. I'll get to it tomorrow. I'll, I'll yeah. look at it again. And you never do. So yeah. that's kind of the face that we're in with Log4j now, like the acute big uh, sort of, you know, skiddies trying every single server face is probably over. But just yesterday or a couple of days ago, there was a news that like actual ransomware gangs are now doing multimodal attacks using Log4j as the kind of first entry point. They're like getting in through the door using it. So mm -hmm. it's the danger is still very much out there. And I think just the mathematics, you know, 40% of every new build still has an old version of Log4j. You know that there's a lot of uh, surface right. out there for them. Yeah. Okay. So that 40%, like, is that basically saying that for, like people are not like there's so much open source and there's so much with vendor due diligence that like even still 40% is falling through the cracks even though we know about this vulnerability totally and, and you yeah. know we not just know we're probably bored of even talking about it at this yeah. stage right <laughs> um yeah that's that's exactly what it means it's like somewhere out there companies still don't quite understand the full chain of third parties that they've got a full chain of open source that they've got in their software mm -hmm. And it's not just your software, it's also the logging framework that you pulled in that also has Log4j in it. And the older monitoring software that's running on the server that's you know running on top of the JVM, that probably has Log4j in it too. So it's, it's, it's all of that, plus companies probably just don't really even know how their software is actually being built, what software they put in, like just honestly. That, that leaves us in this sort of situation. Like it, it, it's uh, very real data, a data that we look at every day and we disseminate to the world. And yeah, it is a little bit depressing going like, we've done all of these campaigns, yeah. and all of these conversations about it. And yet still to this day, it's a, it's a threat. The kind of silver lining though, there's variance in countries. Like generally English speaking countries tend to do a little bit better. I think it's because all the tech companies are from those countries and there's a lot of right. PSAs yeah. on them. But there are countries still in the world where uh, the average 
fixed version download ratio is about 30%, like 70% of all of the downloads are still to those older fundable versions. So that's the, the danger is the message doesn't get evenly dispersed across the industry. So what can companies do then to mitigate the risk of uh, supply chain attacks? Find out a way of building a software bill of materials. There's generators out there, standards like Cyclone DX are, are really, really good at that. Like you run as a part of your build, a plugin and what it does is just literally lists, Hey, here's all the open source that went into this mm. file that away somewhere. Like, even if you do just that, you can then go back to it later with the security scanner or a vulnerability scanner or a tool, like what we do at Sonatype to analyze it later and go, Hey, here's the known risk about it. Right. Just the, no the number one thing to managing anything is understanding what you have. The second question then is, does it have any really, really bad known security vulnerabilities. Like even if it's 10 years old, you should probably get rid of it or you should find a way of upgrading yeah. it or you should find a way of mitigating it. So understanding just like the task at hand is a really important thing. So it takes two seconds per build and it makes a huge dent further down the line for you. The second step then is to start thinking about across teams or if I just talk to my colleague in the next team over or talk to my colleagues in, in, in America, do they even use the same libraries that I do? If they don't, why? Are they so different? Can we make things more uniform? Because then that means yeah. that we can fix the things as, as well. And then just, I think the third little thing that anyone can do like right now is just take 15 minutes every day or 10 minutes or five minutes every day and just run a dependency tree or an NPM list command and just take a look at those and ask yourself, have I really thought of managing things? Because open source also just releases, like these packages have new releases, right? On average, there's about 20,000 releases of new versions every single day. So am I staying up to date? Am I keeping these updated? And it turns out the best way of mitigating all of this stuff is just stay relatively new. You make sure that you keep upgrading your versions. If you just do that sort of stuff, that helps you a ton. Like that just takes a ton of this sort of danger off the table uh, as well. So. Really, it's, it's all about that. Understand what you have and then just set aside a little bit of time every day managing your subdependencies. If you do that, that's going to go a long way to actually just mitigating a lot of these sort of longer tail risks that might happen. And then when something new happens, like often what we like to ask customers is, hey, if I told you there's another log4j and it's going to come out tomorrow, what would you do? Mm -hmm. And the amount of blanks there, so you get in a the room, they're like, well, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, well, you just went through it. Wouldn't you just do what you did then? Would you do something a little bit better? Just like take a moment, pause, because it's very, very hard to pause in life, but just like take a moment and pause. Like, okay, what if it did happen tomorrow again? What would I do differently compared to the last yeah. time? Just having that thought exercise, like five minutes a day. <laughs> yeah, again, I guarantee that's going to go a long way to uh, making sure that it's going to be a lot easier next time. Right. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast, Ilka. Where can we find you and what you're working on online if our listeners want to look? Oh, fantastic. Well, you can find me uh, on Twitter. My uh, handle is L-L-K-K-A-T. Um, and uh, if you want to find out these uh, look for J numbers, we've got a resource center up at Sonatype, sonatype.com slash uh, look for J vulnerability resource center. So um, uh, you can actually take a look at these numbers yourself. It's something that we run, you know, on the hour, every hour. And uh, always interesting to kind of see how the squiggles evolve. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, take a look.
Sweet. Okay. Thank you very much. And just so you know, you can find Hacker Noon online anywhere you look at Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, wherever and where, whenever it's Hacker Noon. You can visit hackernoon.com to read stories about technology. And as always, stay weird and I'll see you on the internet. Try not to become a Bitcoin widower in the meantime. Goodbye. Afternoon podcast.